New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mandrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mandrinos. Hello, everybody. This is Jim Mandrinos, and welcome back to the Comedy Legacy Series. We have a great episode in store for you today. We're bringing on somebody who is an unbelievable performer, started as an impressionist, comes from a family line of comedians, and we're going to be talking about things as wide-ranging as voiceovers, to stand-up, to changing your act, to prepping for a late-night spot. Uh, just sit back, relax, and help us welcome our guest today, Mr. Brian Scott McFadden. So I am so happy right now. Welcome back to the Comedy Legacy Podcast. We've got an incredible guest for you guys, and I'm so happy you said yes. Uh, it, it is you, Brian Scott McFadden. You are the oh guest. Wow, I don't know what to say. I'm just, I'm incredible. I'm just, I'm incredible. I've just You're, never, I'm an, I've been, you finally want, join the Incredibles. You, how, how are the Incredibles? Like a comedy superhero. I have like comedy powers, like that movie, like that cartoon film. I get to finally realize my dreams being one of those films. Star yeah. things or whatever. Anyway, whatever. Anyway. Huge star. Huge star, Brian Scott McFadden. So huge. I, I want to talk to you about a whole lot of things, but, you know, we've talked briefly about what this podcast is, and there's a, a whole lot of comics that, you know, know you and see you on stage, but don't understand that there is a, a journey to get to be as good as you are. You uh, know, everyone starts and they think, I'll be good in a year. And yeah. then that year ends and you're there like, holy shit, I suck. Well, yeah, but that but that's also an interesting phenomenon because as generations change, there's a sort of difference. It's like Steph Curry hitting a three-point shot like from mid-court, and no one thought that was possible. It's a Frank Shorter, the three-minute mile. You don't know what the what the time frame and whether it's going to get compressed by young comedians in the future. Like when we started, it was always like, oh, ten years. You know what I mean? That was like, I remember that was like, everyone would say that. That was like the base mark of like, well, you've got to be doing it for 10 years. You know what I mean? You've got to be doing it for 10 years. And and as somebody who, who's been doing it longer than that <laughs> and, 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 and suffered during that period, all of the, you know, emotional trauma and setbacks and everything else of going through that, we tend to have that perspective. But I, I'm not sure, like, like it, because... We also didn't have places to work like back then, like they have now. Yeah. And that's another weird thing. You know? I mean, we had one, what was it? The improv had one open mic night and, and <laughs> what was it? The village lantern or village yeah. gate or what the hell was that? Uh, what was good that called? Times, that one back during good times. Yeah. Yes. There was good times. Yeah. There was, uh, yeah, but there's also a place called the village gate or the village lantern or the green yeah. lantern or something, you know? Yeah. Now we, Stage time was precious, but yeah. you know, you were one of those guys when, you know, back when you started, you weren't shy to get stage time wherever you could. It yeah. didn't have to be a traditional club for you. You went up anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I did more hell gigs in Jersey anywhere that we could, you know, there were those one-nighters in Jersey, you know, I mean, Betty's Fireside is, is, is famous for being like the hell gig of all time, which yeah. I worked with Otto and George and Tom, me, Tom Cotter and Otto and George did and, and suffered that Thunderdome with a, with a you know, uh, but, but there were so many just like that, that were up and down the Jersey shore 
with the Lapsos gigs and Phil Selman gigs and, and, uh, and, and, you know, and there were so many of those places that, that we just did where we, any place with a microphone and we, I look back on that. I don't know about you. I look back. How the hell did we do that? Like, like there was places that absolutely had no right or justification to do stand up any, on any form. And they just throw up a microphone and you'd be just dealing with drunks who didn't want to see you. And, and, uh, you know, it was just horrifying and we just did it. But I found by being baptized in those kind of gigs, nothing throws me. I could walk into a corporate gig and, and, oh, we don't have a microphone. Yeah. All right, I'll figure it out. Yeah, no. And I don't know if that's because we, like a dog that's been abused, will willing to take it. I can't tell if that's a good thing. You know what I mean? Like, I, I never know if, like, should this be justified that we're allowed? Yeah, yeah, that we have no microphone. Oh, of course you don't. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. or, I love the guys that walk in and go, you don't have a microphone, I'm out of here. It's in my contract. You know what I mean? Like, but if you've been, if you grew up in the, in the, in the nightmarish, uh, you know, dystopian comedy landscape that we, that we were lucky to have a, we were lucky. We were thankful we had a microphone. If you got a microphone, if they, if they didn't stab you, you were thankful, you know? I mean, those gigs were unbelievable. I mean, they were like, did you work with um, grandpas in Staten Island? Oh, way too many times. Yeah. I mean, and pimps, you know, I mean, yeah. you tell anyone like you go, they, these were places, there were comedy clubs that didn't want the comics performing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, like, do you remember the dress code at grandpas? Yes. <laughs> I, re I love that story. I have a great grandpa story where every, every, I, was one of the first comedians that they, you know, I call, I think Camacho was booking a gig and I did it. And then they added a longer list of, of things to the, to the, to the credo that you had to adhere yeah. to. They had a dress code. They had a bow. Do you remember that? Oh when yeah. It, yeah. They got that from Kephart. They, they saw Kephart in Atlantic city and they said, we're going to do, we're going to have the comedians bow. And the comedians were coming in from New York city. They were like, we're not bowing. You know, so they, they, they kind of eliminated that over the months. But then if that thing started to disintegrate into more and more demands, it became like the Magna Carta of rules. Like you had to stay in one place in the club. You couldn't wander. You were allowed one meal. You couldn't associate with any. It was unbelievable. A dress code in Staten Island. Meanwhile, yeah. the audience had absolutely no restraints on them whatsoever about how they could treat us. Like, the, the, the audience, the owner came dressed in sweat. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And we had a dress code, you yeah. know. Um, but what I found particularly interesting about those times is we had to hone our craft in that yeah. situation. We had to figure out a way to write jokes. We had to figure out a way to tell whether or not this shit was any good in an yeah. environment where it was hard to, to even tell them they could actually hear you yeah. half the time. You know, that yeah. late show at Pips was murder to test new material. Unbelievable. It was amazing. Yeah. I've never been in such an antagonistic environment where the audience has absolutely no allegiance to the show they paid money to see, you know, like, like where, where it's actually a shooting gallery of, of, uh, of like, let's take them down, you know, like, and, and, and so that was a, such a different, I, I mean, it was such a different environment in some ways similar because there's still clubs, you know, yeah. don't, don't attend to crowd control like like you know they used to you know the seller if anybody hackles you at the seller they're gone they, they you know what i mean they're done yeah. you know, they, they kick them out. but not every club and gotham i think is like 
when someone threw something on the ball field at Yankee Stadium, there was a special room they would take him and break his legs. Yeah. I think I think I think Gotham used to do that. <laughs> I think that Gotham had the same room somewhere. Uh, that 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 anyone that heckled Reggie Jackson or Jim Mendrinos got the same treatment. You know, like. Yeah, it was. It's amazing because hecklers leave the room and you never see them come back for their stomach, Gotham. No, no, absolutely. So, I, I mean, it was a different environment. And I don't know what, what tricks, like, were there tricks that you learned in those things that kind of affected your, you know, obviously, you know, your approach or how you, how you structured your act from working in those places? Well, I found it, you know, because we're at opposite ends of the spectrum. You are a natural board performer. Like, you you turn it on like that. I have to sweat every nuance of performance. Uh, I'm a good writer. So for me, it was learning how to translate that writing and actually choreographing it and making that intentional, you know, beat to go slow. Right. But what about for you? Did it change the material you did? Did you get more rough and tumble? Well, I learned how to, I actually, I actually, you know, kind of like a, like a, like a, a like one of Michael Vick's dogs. I, I sort of like, so, sort of built I sort of started structuring my act in such a way to leave no silence anywhere where I could be yelled at, heckled. Like that back then, I, I, I worked so many of those gigs that, that if you left the slightest, you know, slightest opening for anyone to say anything. So what I used to do to combat that, I learned just write 20 punchlines and just keep hammering them. Like, like I just kept writing. I would like write these long bits that just went on and on and on. And eventually the audience will be, I felt like the audience, if they don't laugh at the joke, they'll just become exhausted, okay? <laughs> and I would just keep, and, and they'll just give up trying to yell at me. And that's exactly what happened at some of those gigs. I would just keep talking and keep talking and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and they try to heckle me. And eventually they just gave up, right? And then I, they, then, and so, and my act became like long and drawn out lists and, and, and kind of fun size, which was good and bad because in those environments it's great, but then you do something like Star Search or America's Got Talent, and my bits were like seven minutes long. I wasn't like, Tom Cotter is so great at that, one liner, one liner, yeah. one liner. My bits went on and on and on, like they were these Wagnerian operas, you know? Like, like, and, and so they were great for club, you know, it was good for clubs and stuff like that, but there was never, I didn't get that laugh, 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 laugh. It was just long, long bit, hammer, tag, 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 so they don't, so they don't get you. And then I'd leave the stage like exhausted going, all right, I, I, they didn't shoot me. I made it. Another, another day, where's my $150, you know, like, like cash without paying taxes, you know. <laughs> and we, um, I remember us doing a, a TV um, a TV show together. They did a catch that capture for a TV show on the America's Talking Network out of um, out of Bananas. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yes. We, just, we did that what together. Was that name? What was the host of that? Bill Boggs? Uh, I think it was Bill Boggs. Okay. It, was it Bill Boggs? Uh, yeah, it, it, it escapes me, but I know that they filmed all the comics on the same night at, uh, at Bananas, and I remember um, I had worked with you before because you started a little bit after me, and I always thought you were wonderfully funny, but that night, I think you, uh, it was the first time I had ever seen you do uh, Gozar the Keymaster. Do you remember that bit? <laughs> yes, I remember that. I remember that. That was my closing. I always, my father taught, was a comedian, so he taught me. He said, 
if you close big, they'll never remember anything else, right? So I always, one thing I was good at was I wrote, I wrote a, a majestical final bit that I always had that had tons of punchlines and tons of weird one-liners and I always had something good to close with so that if everything else ate it during the show, I would always be like, all right, I got a big closer coming. Just kill time before you get to the closer. And that was my, I need the key routine from about being yeah. in the supermarket and not having enough cash. And they have to, and the, and the, the counter person would go, I need the key. And I had like 50 or 60 jokes in that thing that just like every boom, boom, boom. Like, you know, now they have to wait till they find the, <laughs> They don't have it. Where, who's, why, where is this key and why can't they make a copy of it? Okay, that's what I want to know. We have all these technological advances, but they can't make run down to the hardware store and crank out a couple copies of the key and distribute the sadists that work there. Instead, you've got to stand there for nine hours while they go find Gozar the key master, okay, who's going to come down and, and perform the voodoo ritual that opens the register so you can get the hell out of it. Yeah, so it was like that. It was like boom, 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 you know? That, that was a, a, a fun moment for me to watch because I'm standing in the back of the room and you were fairly new at the time and they put you in between uh, a couple of veteran comics. As TV tapings do, let's hide the new yeah. guy just, just in case something happens, you know. Right. And you started that bit and the MC walked right up to Harlan and went, I got to do like five minutes after he's done with this. I can't put the next act on. It's not fair. You know, and it was it was just see it was like a coming out moment, and I remember after that it it became like nobody really wanted to follow you for a little while. Ah, that's funny. Well, that's yeah. that's that's always a compliment. That's always a compliment. So you touched on your dad being a comedian. Was it easier or harder for you to to embrace doing this with your dad being a comic? Uh, it, it's that's that's a great that's a fascinating question and one I've discussed in therapy all ad infinitum. Okay, I cannot tell you how much exploration I've done of that exact question over and over and over again in inner child workshops and primal scream therapy. Um, that that question has vexed me, and I'll tell you, I, I can sort of now tell you the honest truth, and I probably wouldn't have been able to write what I did in that thing. Uh, before that, the, the honest truth is, it was both. It, it actually gave me, it actually gave me two things. Again, it, it, it hurt me in the sense that my father was competitive with me, and was unable because of his own uh, issues to really. When I was little, I'm talking about when when I was older, he was great. But but when I was little, when I really needed him to say, "Wow, you're really funny. You're really talented." That was when my father would go, ah, that's not funny. That's not good. That isn't good. You think that's funny? You think that's funny? So I had that Jerry Lewis thing where, where you know, where, where he was trying to please his dad and make his – I loved making my dad laugh. But, and when I was older, I could make my dad laugh easily. But, when I, but that's not when I needed it, right? Like when I was – when you're younger, that's when you yeah. need it. And it was easy for my dad to come to my shows when I, was, when I had started as a comic. He would sit in the back, laugh hysterically, telling me, oh, my God, you were so good. And I was going, Dad, I was doing this shit when I was nine, okay? Like, like when we're, where, that's, that's when I needed this affirmation, okay? So, so on the one hand, it was, it, was, it, was, it was great because my father was a, a, a comedian and he was in show business. And that showed me that you could just do that. I didn't know anything else. I knew so many people that wanted to do, like, be musicians and and artists and they didn't have role models of what was possible 
So they never could, they always got business degrees and they had something to fall back on. And they said, oh, uh, I, I'll do this, but I'll, I'll try this. And it was sort of like, uh, but just in case. I never had a just in case, right? Like, like, like I, didn't have a, I didn't have a plan B. I had no, I, I was like my dad and my mother were both performers and it was like, oh, that's what you do. I thought everybody's father was on the Thundercats, right? Like like my father was Snarf on the Thundercats. My father was Frankenberry cereal, right? He was the voice of Frank and he did shtick and voices all the time. So I thought everyone, that's what everyone does. So it wasn't weird to me and to a lot of young people and, and uh, you know, and, and people who want to have a career in ship is just, it's alien. And it's the possibilities is weird and they don't see that it, the possibilities are weird and they, they don't see the possibility that that could actually be a career that you could make money in. But that was never an issue for me. My issue was going farther than my dad, like, like going beyond him, outdoing him. Like there was some kind of serious Freudian thing, which is probably why I'm not as well known as a lot of the guys that are, that I start, you know, started with, and, and, you know, because I sort of had a cap on what I thought, you were allowed to do, you know, I didn't want to show, I, I, I like, I believe me, I've examined the shit out of this and I, I'm sort of over it right at this weird time in my life. I'm sort of like, I don't, now I, now it doesn't affect me. But back then I was always like, I, I, I would always have, have nervous, like panic attacks if I go beyond, you know, do I really want that? Do I want to get a sitcom? You know, like, I don't know, maybe that's not for me or maybe I won't be good enough or whatever. And I had all these neurotic shit that went around, but it really came down to a lot of what you think you're allowed to have and what you're entitled to and what you think you're capable of and, and, and allowing yourself to, to, to embrace and, and get. And so I think that sort of answers your question. It's a blessing and a curse as whatever comedian said, it's a blurse. I can't remember who that was, but who was that? It was someone, we, one of our contemporaries. I think it was Jonathan Katz, I think maybe. Yeah, it sounds like he could be Katz. That's yeah, his yeah. kind of wordplay. Blessing and a curse. It's a blurse. It's a blurse. Yeah. We, um, you've also always had your hand into voiceovers. Yeah. Uh, I, I've seen the photos of the studio you built in your yeah. apartment. And it, yeah, there it, it is. There yeah. it is. There it is right there. It actually, you know, looks better than the sound booth I have at my studio in Jersey. Uh, um, yeah. It, but, uh, you know, it seemed for a while like it was pulling you out of stand-up. There was a... Yeah. A, a chunk of time where you weren't performing all that much yeah. in stand-up. Yeah, I also was really comfortable. That was another thing that was a, a problem. I, I became really comfortable because I, I became, you know, I started doing a lot of voiceovers and I started making money there. And that, and that was something that I never had to worry about. You know, I started, uh, I booked a lot of big commercials. I was the voice of a lot of things. So I, I sort of, I wasn't as hungry and I could, I turned down jobs and I would like say, I don't need that. I don't need that because I was doing really well and I was making money. And, and now I look back and I said, I should have, I should have focused. <laughs> I don't really have regrets though, but because it's, it's what, I, but there was, a, there was now looking back going, uh, if I didn't have that, I might've been auditioning for more films and TV. I, I was studying acting. I was doing Shakespeare, you know. But I, but I was making money. When you're, when you're making money in this other field, it sort of makes you. That was, that was my problem because it was like other people with something to fall back on. I had VO work, so I, you know, people would call me with, "Can you want to tour? You want to go around the country?" Nah, I got plenty of work here. I'm, I'm good. You know, I always was happy to do five spots in the city instead of one spot in Iowa. You know, like, yeah. like, like, like I was all. 
even if it was three times the money, I would say, well, I got BO audition, so I, I really don't want to. And I think that was like a, a thing where it kept me, it kept me, yeah, there was times when I also joined a theater company at one point and I was, I was doing Shakespeare plays all the time. So I was not, I was not even, I was barely doing stand up at that, at that time for like a two to three year period. You probably remember that. Yeah. And, uh, and that was like, that, that was great. That was great artistically and everything else. But yeah, it did take me out of the, the business. And, and also it wasn't something I was laser focused on. I'm going to be, you know, I saw everybody, Louie and Dave and, and uh, David, Tal you know, all those guys that do that sitcoms. I watched them all go, Oh, Ray Romano. Like, you know, I did all those, I do all those one liners with one nighters with Ray and, and Dave and they're, and they're great. They deserve like everything. I, I you know, I always watch, I was like, Oh, you know, that would be nice maybe, but uh, I'm good. You know, I'm good, right? <laughs> like, so if anybody has a sitcom deal, I'm ready now. I'm okay now. You can throw it to me if, if, you, if you have any, if you have a concept you want to pitch to me. And if, if, if you get it, you need a wacky sidekick. I'm available for that. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you a, you'll be right on my speed dial. Uh, <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about, you know, the last, I'd say the last 10 or 15 years, you kind of really elevated your game. You've always been an amazing performer, but the just the sheer amount of material over the last 15 years that you've been pushing out on a regular basis. And like you said, your bits are long, so they have to take a little more time to develop than somebody that's doing one-liners. Yeah. What, what, is, what is your process? How do you churn out that much quality material in that short a time span? Well, it's like, it's like anything else. You, you have something you wanna, you wanna say and uh, like, like, and you want to say something, and, and then you go, okay, how do I do this? And then, like, there's a bit that I, I, I still, I'm still working on it. It's, it's funny now, but it's like, it's like, I always thought, I always thought it was funny that uh, that people use the, the terminology of comedy is very, very violent. And George Carlin did a bit about this, yeah. about you know, I died, I killed, I, you know, but uh, but I always thought it was funny, and I always wanted to do a bit about how, it, what if they what if they, what if they, you know, covered a, a bombing, a comedian bombing, like they did like a terrorist bomb, right? Like, right, right? Like, what if the news treated it the same way? Now, to me, that's a really funny premise. Okay, so there's your premise. And I said, I said, okay, I want to write a bit about the ultimate, you know, the worst, the show so bad, a comedian doesn't show so bad that literally, like FEMA trucks show up and 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 the news media shows up. And it's every it's breaking news, a horror, horror at a local comedy club tonight, you know, where eyewitnesses say an unfunny comedian suddenly took the stage, leaving horrified audience members searching for answers. OK, you know, like, and I wrote a bit that bit and it's still being worked. That bit is still being added to. And it's something I've never done on television and I'm still like working it out. But it's it's like I get an idea for that. And then then I love doing characters and voices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on every news report of a disaster, they always interview people about, you know, yeah, I was standing over there by the bathroom and, uh, you know, usually the comedians see it pretty good, but this guy goes on and right away, I knew something was wrong, you know? I mean, this guy, he didn't even look funny, you know? I mean, I was lucky I was able to get out in time, but so many people were trapped, you know, it's awful, you know? Um, and so I love writing bits about comedy as well that's another thing that i've always I, I love writing bits that are inside but not but not so inside that the audience won't get it and and so i i 
I write, you know, then I'll get an idea like that and I'll just write the shit out of it. Like I'll try to write like 20, that's a, it's not, I don't recommend it because I get perfectionistic and then I just like write the shit and then I end up not doing it and then getting caught, you know, like what women want, which is what got me Letterman. Yeah. Yeah, that bit. That bit was like started out really small and just I kept, I stayed up late at night with a thesaurus coming up with every possible conglomeration of of contradictory things that women want in a man. They want him to be uh, strong but sensitive, tough but tender, masculine but gentle and manly but vulnerable. You know, like I just kept and I wrote, 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 wrote. And uh, one night at the strip, I was at God bless the comic strip because I, I, I tried out so much stuff there. And I was at the strip and I babbled that thing out and it, I said it and it got an applause break and I didn't know what I had done. I didn't, I really didn't know. I was like, I was like, what the hell did I say that made that work? And something I did just, I babbled it, said it the right way, went back, listened to the tape, wrote it out, memorized it, grooved it in. And then I had the structure to say, okay, here's the beginning. Here's the middle. Here's the end. Now I got to fill in all these other parts, but I got an epic thing here. And 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 and, the, and if you get the ending right, you get the beginning right, you can play around in the middle. And that's usually the way I write. I got an ending. Now let me let me work backwards. I I got a killer closing joke, and then I'll just write backwards. You know? So it sounds like your process is mutually on stage and on the page. You do yeah. a little bit of writing, you bring it to the stage, and then you you flesh it out. How important is recording the set and listening back to what you've done? I used to I used to record whenever I'd record my spots I uh, I would get nervous. I don't I, whenever I record, when I didn't record, I I I, I would, like every time I record I was like, oh, I would be conscious of the recording. So then I made a commitment to record every set I do, right? Like like I I I I, I rather that way I stopped thinking about it cuz I couldn't just go up and bomb and get nervous every night so I just recorded every so I never not record I, that's a that's a commitment I record every single set that I do I have years of stuff and I, I almost never even delete them I just put them on a different disc and just throw them, throw them to the side but I have every spot every show everything I've recorded and then I, I wish I could say I think Dave Attell does that and I think he listens to every spot every set after his show and that's why he's so good me, I don't do that. <laughs> I, I record them. I put them aside. Occasionally, I'll listen if I say something. But I think I'd be a lot better off if I actually listened. But a lot of times, I just go, I've done it. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want oh God. I already finished it. Why bother? So I, I don't know. I always thought David Brenner was interesting the way he, he said he never wrote anything. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how people do that. I've seen guys who say that. I, I, go, I go, I never wrote anything down. I go, Okay, I stumbled into some jokes where I got the proper wording, but there were always a moment where I was like, okay, what comes first? Is it panda bear or koala bear? I can't remember. I'd have to get the wording, so I would write it out and then groove it in. You know? I would literally have four jokes if I waited for inspiration. Like, in my whole career, I'd have four lines. Really? You know? Yeah, and probably, because I sweat everything when I write. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a lot about the performance because that's for me has always been the most fun part watching you. You embody every voice you do on stage. You, you take the time to not only give them a vocal range, which a lot of comics do voices. You also give them a physicality, you right. know, the, the way the, the, uh, 
the way the checkout person's shoulders shrug when she right. has to yell for the key. You right. know, right. It, how much of that's intentional? How much of that's choreographed? How much of that's instinct? Uh, well, it's a weird thing about voices. Um, there's something about voices, and you talk to I, I started as an impressionist. You know, when I was working, you know, when I first started, yeah. my, my big thing was, I, I think I did the Iran-Contra Gate, the movie. Okay, that was with Jackie Mason, Woody Allen, Eddie Murphy. I, I, I had, that was my big closer before I need the key. I can like look at, I look at my career like, what was my closer? What was my closer? What was my closer? You know, like every, every couple of years I had a closer that was my, that I built my act to get to. And when I first started, it was Iran Contra, the movie. And I, I literally can't remember. Every, oh, it was Robin Leach was in it. I don't know. It was all the voices that every comic was doing back then. Every impressionist. Was, uh, oh, uh, Dudley Moore uh, as Oliver North, I think. I think it was. I, don't ask me why. It was like, oh, great. I'm selling arms to the hostage. I'm trading arms to the hostage. Thank you. <laughs> I think that was something like, I can't remember. But, uh, but I had all these weird voices. And so when... I started doing voices. I started doing impressions, and that there's something about that that it takes over your fucking body sometimes, and and it really kind of gets in your system. And if you're an actor and you like doing voices, you kind of get lost in that. I love doing that. Like you know, I love I love doing a voice that just I don't have to think about me. I just disappear into this other guy, and then I can fucking talk about whatever you want. I love these new. I love fucking New York guys. I got. I got like too many bits where I do a New York character. I just have been around those fucking guys all your fucking life. You know what I'm talking about? This is bullshit, all right? You're fucking funny. You're fucking funny, all right? So I, I used to be around those guys. I love doing those kind of characters where you just like kind of, for me, that's just like a vacation. Sometimes If somebody's heckling me, I'll sometimes go into what I think they sound like, and I'll just do that for 10 minutes on stage. It's a blast, you know? That's... Um... I want to talk about the process because it's hard enough for a guy like me who, who writes in shorter clips, but you did, you did Letterman, you know, you, you did late night shows and you are so free form on stage and you take your time and your bits have length. You know, I, I've seen you do a 20 minute set where you do two to three bits and you know, the, the audience just loves it. I, I know. I, I wish, I wish, I, I watched like Tom Cotter and, and guys that have the one-liners and I was like, ah, oh, ah, oh, you know, cause I think I auditioned for, I think it was America's Got Talent and it was not for me. Like, you know, I was just not, you know, it, it was not my format because I don't have la laughs every second. I have a huge laugh, but it takes you, it's a huge laugh, but it's like two minutes in, you know, like. <laughs> it's construction. So, yeah. 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 But so that, yeah. You then get the late night spot and you have to, I think you did 4.30, 4 minutes, 30 seconds. Uh, I think it was around that for Letterman. Yeah. I think it was a little, maybe a little more than that. Um, yeah. But what we didn't want was perfect for that because it was, uh, and I did the CNN guy on uh, Craig Ferguson. That's another bit that had a lot of characters, yeah. and voices and stuff like that. That was my other closer. I did that on, and, and that was, that had short jokes, but they were in the context of a bit, and they were one-liner, 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 one-liner. Now, did you find, obviously, you have to go through with the producers and call the set, and they give me more of this, give me less of that. Did you yeah. find that process to be difficult coming off your style, or was it uh, easy to do? Uh, one, you know, it's like those shows, they used to say that for a comic, those shows are the toughest thing to get and the easiest thing to do. 
you know, um, it, it, and I wouldn't say it was the easiest thing to do, but I will say that once I got it and I was able to work on it and I drilled that set ad infinitum, I did, I did something, you know, uh, that, that was probably a smart move. I set up a camera in my living room and I would, I would pretend I was doing the show and I wasn't able to, I wasn't, I couldn't stop or edit or anything. I had to do the set as written and never stop. And I drilled it and drilled it and drilled it. And then the night we were in a tape, they cut, they told me that they wanted, the censors wanted to cut one of the lines, right? So, so, and, and it, it was in the flow of that thing. So I, I was, it, it was like, it was like, a, I think the joke was, uh, women want a bit of a bad boy, a man with an edge, little bit of mystery, even a little hint of danger, who loves kids, okay? Uh, I, and they thought that was somewhat risque or something like that, or, or, or you know, possibly could be interpreted as, uh, I don't know, pedophile, I don't even know, whatever, who knows what. But they said, that's a little too edgy. And so they cut it, and then, and so, when you're in the used to, you know this as a writer, or a performer too, you know, you, you, you're used to doing it a certain way. And so, if you watch that set, no one can see this but me, but there's a moment where I go to do that line, okay, and I pivot immediately. There's a slight, a slight moment. No one can see it. I can see it. I go, what? I almost did the joke that they told me to cut because it's so grooved in. But I cut it. I went to the next joke and nailed it and got got the hell out of there. <laughs> did it right. But that that was the only arduous process was going through the period of cutting, pasting, putting that mm -hmm. together with working with Eddie Brill, who was great and, 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 uh, helped me put the set together. And, and once it was down, it was, it was great. And then doing it was just awesome. Now watching you do it on stage, you're one of the few you, watching your Ledman spot. You're one of the few comics that kept your natural rhythm. Most yeah. of the comics tend to speed up or slow down when yeah. they, when they hit the late night shows, yeah. but you just, this is what I do. This is how I'm doing it. Was right. that, was that a conscious choice? Was that, you know, the, the well, material think, selection? Well, I think I was, I, I was a bit, I mean, I, I can't even tell you, I think I went into a zone that, that when I was doing that, and I literally look back on that going, how the hell did I do that without, I'm at the Ed Sullivan Theater, you know, and like your, your dream as a comedian is to do, you know, Carson or Letterman. Yeah. And there I was doing it. And I literally like look back on that going, how the hell did I pull that off? I don't even, <laughs> like, but, but um, the, the, as far as the rhythm goes, um, it, 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 I, it's all the experience that I had had in doing it for so long. I had, I wasn't like just a totally young beginner on that show. I had, I had years of performing experience to draw on. So it was really, really, I was ready to do that. And uh, I kind of stuck to my, to what I look at it now and I realize, oh, I'm so much better at comic now. You know, like I'm much more at ease. Back then I was more, I was, I, I, there, there was a certain terror I had, which all comics probably have, but there's a certain, there's a certain level of fear that I was, uh, I've got to get through this. I got to survive this. I got to kick ass. And, and now I'm having way more fun doing stand up, which is why I miss it so much now since it's, yeah. uh, since it's disappeared, you know? Let's, uh, let's talk about, you know, missing it because, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic when we're recording this, not quite sure when it's going to be released. But um, a couple of days ago, you wrote for Medium, I believe was yeah. the place that published it, an article, uh, an open letter to stand-up comedy. Yes, yes, I did. Yes. Um, and it's you kind of said everything that every comic is feeling, you uh, know, uh, and, and and all the, all the, you know, missing all the bad gigs, missing all the, 
the things that we, we thought were shitty. What inspired you to write that? And, and how on earth did you get them to publish that? Uh, <laughs> well, it's funny. Um, uh, I remember when, uh, I remember Co Kobe Bryant had done uh, something called Dear Basketball. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like a, kind of a love letter to basketball. And it really moved me. I thought it was uh, beautiful, but I didn't think I didn't think anything of it. It was it was a while it was a while back, and and it won an Academy Award, I think, as a short subject. And I'd seen it, and I just thought that's beautiful, that's lovely. But I didn't think to do that, and you know anything other with it or anything. I just thought that's lovely, you know, that's lovely. Uh, and then uh, during this pandemic, I was sitting around thinking about um, how I how I how how it's like a phantom limb if you're used to performing. You're so used to going, you know, where's that show? Wait, I have a show. No, I don't. You know, hey, I have a show. No, I don't. Right. Wait, I haven't. No, I don't. And there's like, and as this thing has gone on um, there, I, I realized how much I had at, at times bitched and complained about having to do that show that I had. Yeah. That, that show. Like, like I thought, I thought, oh, God, would I, you know, what, I have another show uh, Saturday night and uh, there was only 38 people there and oh god and you're complaining and it's like Brian you were on stage for 20 minutes you know doing stand-up and 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 it started to realize that that like wow I sort of there were nights that I would give anything to go do a 10 minute I wrote that the 10 minute check spot into in front of a bunch of non-English speaking deaf mutes you know yeah. give me that time right now and I used to think that that was there was something also pathological about stand up, you know, meaning that you're desperate to get love you never got in your childhood and you you know it's a it's a compensatory thing for and and but all of that is just my own shit that like I just put on that that had nothing to do with it. And so I I sort of got this idea and it just sort of that came out of me kind of poured right out of me. I was just sitting around and I just said, "I, you know, I'm going to write a letter to of apology to stand up because I have these regrets." And I want stand up to know that I'm sorry that I that I that I was so cavalier that I didn't take that I took you for granted stand up. You know, you were the, and, and I looked at everything that I had done and everything and I thought, what a great love affair I've had with this art form that I it really meant means a lot to me. And I love the art form. I hate when people degrade it or or, yeah. or I hate, there's so many things I, I hate about like when people say, you know, when when, when people use the, I was just kidding response. And I'm like, look, I'm a comedian. We get to say that you don't. Politicians don't get to joke around no. and say, I was just kidding. No, that's not allowed. We're the professionals. That's our, that's our, we get to do that. No one else does. And I, I know that sounds weird, but, but I always thought that this is a specialized art form and it's a gift and a, and a, and a, and a precious thing. And people don't realize how, um, how, how how wonderful wonderful it really is! It's the most respected and most disrespected art form that, that there is. Yeah. It's the only you know, people come and heckle you. I mean, what? Where does that happen? You know what I mean? Like they want you to they, they they try to fuck you up. They think they're funnier than you. No one goes to Yankee Stadium. Go, hey, I could let, give me the bat. I can hit that out. You know what I mean? Like no one thinks that. No one thinks they can play guitar like Jimmy Page. Yeah. To me, I'm funny too. Let me top you. You know, it's like it's like are you kidding me, really, really. So I wanted to get all the things, and and speak to stand up like it was someone that I cared about and wanted to share with and express my uh, apology to, regret, and anything I had done to neglect it, 
and say that I, I really miss you, buddy. Uh, I love you. I, I thank you for everything. I never told you these things. That sucks that it's taken this pandemic to let me see that I have to tell you what you really meant to me, what you did for me. And, and, and so that's where that came out of. It was sort of like a, a, an inspired, just uh, a pretty like musy thing that just kind of poured out of me. So, and, and I was glad to see people like, um, I, I knew like, it, you know, I knew it would resonate with some people. I didn't know how many or, or, or it, I mean, it is weird to talk to an art form, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like that, you know. But it is kind of coming out like an anthem. What I, what I love about what you do is even, even as simple as online posts, because I'm looking at some of the stuff you're publishing right now during the pandemic, you have a very subversive truth and a very way, a very fun way of saying what everyone's thinking. Um, and uh, in particular, you put out a, a video talking about the uh, current controversy of comics that have left New York versus the ones that stayed right. in the city, yeah. you know, and you, yeah. you sided with uh, the people saying they shouldn't get spots, not yeah. because you think they did anything wrong, you just yeah. want more spots. And, and, and the way you cut to it and kind of say what everyone's thinking gives your act uh, very much an everyman quality that right. it feels easy to relate to. Um, but it's also incredibly personal and also incredibly intelligent. Thank you. You know, and how do you weave all of that in? Because there's a whole lot of comics that do personal stuff that's not accessible, a whole lot of comics that are doing accessible stuff that's not intelligent. But yet, right. yet you're able to take all these three things and put them together in a way that most comics can't. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate it, Jim. And you're, you're someone who I, uh, you know, I, I, I've always respected you as a, as a writer. I, I did your, sh I, what was that play? I did one of your plays. I yes, did. you did. <laughs> I, About I did. a million years ago. Yes, I did. I was in one of your plays. You've always been a very prolific guy, like writing for Gotham the Gotham Writers Club or whatever you're, you're yeah. teaching, you're doing, yeah, I, I, I respect that. So, and, as, and, and you've been an observer and a, and a participant in, the, in this period of the comedy boom, which a, lot of, which a lot of people, and you've seen various gradations of this crazy up and down industry. We've lived through, how many times have we lived through the whole, oh, the comedy business is done, or the comedy boom is over, or the, you know what I mean? I, we, that comedy's dead, you know, like New At York- At least once a decade. It happens all the time, and it's happening now again. You know, it's like it's like the humor doesn't really die. And for me, because I grew up with a it, the thing that was weird about me is like my dad was a, because my dad was a comic, and my grandfather was a failed alcoholic vaudevillian, right? Like um, who I I never met because he died of liver disease because he drank himself into a stupor. It's sort of like. He, he failed. My father succeeded at a certain level. I've gone by my father, but I'm trying to take it to the next level, you know, <laughs> like so. So, and, uh, so, so my thing was always that I've been around comics. I kind of understand comedy in a way that because my dad was a comic, I kind of get the narcissistic wounding that comedians have, the grandiosity, the ego, the, the pain of it, the anguish of it. Uh, but the wonder of it and the magic of it, it's all tied in. That's what sucks. That's why so many comedians kill themselves because you have to, you know, there's yeah. there's so many contradictions to this art form. There's humor, but it's, I used to really fight that thing. I used to go, ah, it comes from pain, but don't accountants have pain too, you know? Well, the accountants have pain too. Yeah. But comedians are, are a specific kind of sensitive thing where it's brutally 
difficult uh, and we tap into certain things and try to deal with things through humor. And I, I was no exception. And I kind of, I kind of love, I love doing stuff about show business and performing and stuff that I know comedians are the most self-righteous. <laughs> I love them to death, but the self-righteous, hey, you left the city. You're, you're, you know, you, uh, you have no right. I love that. That was to me so funny because I can see the, I can see both sides of that. Yeah. I can see the argument. You left the city, so I stayed, and I should get those spots. But not because you know you did anything. Wrong. I just want the spots. Can I just decide like that? That's the real dark motivation underneath it. It's this ego. You know, it's like it's like, and and that's why that's the, that's something you can illuminate with humor because it's part of the folly of being like a uh, you know a flawed human being, and we try to put these like positive spins on our darkness. And uh, and calling that out in a way that's like, yeah, I just want the spots, you know, <laughs> just like you, I'm not, I'm trying to say, hey, it's wrong what you're doing, but you know what, I just, I just kind of want the spots. That's all I want to say, you know, it's just, that's just it. I just want the spots, you know. Okay. So, so, so that was my way, my little tribute to the whole, you know, the whole, uh, the whole dynamic there that I was seeing online of it. I like, I was like, really, guys, really, you know, there's, we're gonna. We're gonna ostracize people who went to Wilton, Connecticut, because their parents had a summer home there, and uh, they were lucky enough to get out of here. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there with an eye patch, like Kurt Russell in the Escape from New York, you know, here in New York. Like we're fighting it out here, and I'm gonna get more spots. Yeah, okay, I'll take them, but I'm not gonna fucking say that you shouldn't have left the city, you know. I'm yeah. I'm gonna take them because I want the fucking spots, right? <laughs> and damn it, I'm funny, you know. Yeah. What? I, I'm, I love talking to people that love the art form. And more than anything, you love stand-up. Every yeah. time we've had a conversation about stand-up, you're quoting comics, you're watching shows, yeah. Yeah. you know, and you don't just quote the contemporaries, you also quote, you know, the greats, the guys that came before us. Sure. And there's, yeah. a whole, there's a whole generation of comics that if they hadn't seen you at the cellar, you don't exist. Yeah, you know? sure. sure. It, for you uh, how many people how many people don't even know who rich jenny is yeah you know what I mean? like 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 rich jenny was like one of the greatest comics who ever picked up a microphone the guy was like springsteen he could do like three hour shows a different one every night and 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 that's the thing that's so so weird about the ephemeral nature and the fragility of our art form there are great comics who have fallen down the memory hole and great jokes that you will never hear again. Yeah. Because they're not on Twitter or they're not on, you know, there's like great magical material that is just, and, and a great joke and, and, and something like, you know, do you remember, uh, what's his name? You remember Dexter Madison? Yes. Yeah. That's a name from the past. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a guy, there's a guy, and I, what's his name? Uh, Bob something. He was, before he changed his name. He was as a comic and he had these great jokes that I feel bad. It's like a, a song that no one will ever hear. Like it's not on a CD. It's not, he used to do this great bit. He used to do this great bit where he'd go, he'd go, I, uh, I'm gonna do a, a prop now. I'm not a prop comic, but I'm gonna go. Uh, uh, he did his, he was this comedian who took on this, he came out on a white tux. Yeah. And you know, but people watching, he, he came out on a white tux and he played this like Jeeves like Butler character. And he had these great jokes, and he would go, he'd go, I spent uh, New Year's Eve alone this year. 
it was a personal decision made by my friends, right? <laughs> right, right? And he would sip, and he would sip the, he would sip his champagne yeah. uh, thing, and 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 he would have these like unbelievable, jo these just really well written, well literate kind of jokes that he would have. I'm trying to, I can't remember them now. I wish I, I wish I, it just popped into my head. That was the only one I thought of, but there was a couple of really good ones that I can't remember. But there are comics like Dennis Wolfberg, yeah, you know. Uh, I mean, Ronnie Shakes, you know, uh, like guys that you don't even know and no one will ever know. I mean, everyone knows Mitch Hedberg because his stuff stayed online. But there were guys like Dennis Wolfberg and, and Rich Jenny that you don't know. No one knows. Rich Jenny had one of the funniest bits that's not on a CD or a special anywhere about being Jeffrey Dahmer's lawyer. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man. You yeah, remember I remember that, that bit. There's oh, it was the funniest thing I'd ever, it was so funny. And he did it like, and I, and, and I tape, I think I taped it because I had, a, I said, I got to tape this bit. And then I think I lost the tape or something. It was on an audio tape, but it was basically Jeffrey Dahmer's lawyer. If you're going to, he, if I was Jeffrey Dahmer's lawyer, I'd just make up the wildest shit in the world, throw it at a wall and hope for the best. You know what I mean? Like, like, and he, and he goes, and he just, the opening line was great. He just goes, uh, the opening line's great. He goes, uh, he goes, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it's true that my client, Jeffrey Dahmer, has admitted to killing and eating over a dozen people. But before we rush to judgment, right, <laughs> let us not look at our own behavior and see if it hasn't always been tippy-top, right? <laughs> and that was the opening salvo to this ridiculous presentation that Rich did that was so fucking funny and had the best twist ending of all time. Yeah. I, won't even, I, I won't even do it. I can't, I can't do it justice. <laughs> But I can actually in, do it, but in the middle of the bit, when he just he turns and looks at Jeffrey Dahmer and goes, "He was just hungry." Yes, yes, that one yes look, exactly. With yes. such sincerity, yes, with such commitment. That yes, because, yes, and he goes, "Oh, you just made me remember." He goes, he would go, uh, he would go, and 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 what is cannibalism anyway? In Africa, on a daily basis, cannibalism is practiced almost daily, and where is the public outcry, right? What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is my, if my client, Jeffrey Dahmer, was an African woman with a bone in his nose, we would not be sitting in this, in this, in this courtroom today. What I'm trying to say is this trial is racially motivated, right? So, right? And I was like, that is so genius. I, in a million years, I wish I had written that. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to do a night where... People would say, comedians would get on stage and say, do jokes we wish we had written, or bits we wish we had done, or, or, uh, or jokes that, that no one remembers anymore that need to be heard, you know? Oh, God. I'd probably do, I'd probably do Freddie Prince's Tonight Show appearance. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the one for me that, that was the moment, that was the first stand-up I saw and went, I can do this. It yeah. sounds like, to you, that was your dad, but who were the... Who were the people before you jumped on stage that you looked at and said, "I want to be like these guys"? Uh, it was it was all it was always prior. Uh, a lot of, it was always between comics, especially white comics. It was always prior or Carlin, you know. And a lot of guys were Carlin guys, and I was always a, I loved Carlin. Mm -hmm. But I I saw Richard do uh, you know when I saw you know live at the Sunset Strip and yeah. I saw and and, and uh, live in concert and I saw the Dog Story. I think the dog story in, in uh, live in concert is one of the greatest pieces of comedy ever written by anybody. And it, and it's something that I don't know if people, that's like Freebird. That's like, that's like stairway to heaven. 
you every comic watch watch live in concert there's 30 bits in that that are so great right like you don't even you know if you watch those things back to back that's a master class it's not but people think but there's great wording there's great jokes there's great one line you know it's like it's like and and the bits have a build but he was able to do something that i never saw anyone do kinnison almost pulled it off but richard could be could have pathos and never not be funny right like like he could he could do yeah. that like chaplin thing where he would just send chills down your spine of being like really emotional and gut-wrenching the stuff about where, where he got, talks about women uh breaking up with a woman and a woman breaks your heart is, is like every man that's when you, that's your diploma as a man when a woman breaks your heart because you you, you you know and you, you and women get cool when they when they break up with you right you're like oh, don't you see i love you oh oh John. oh oh richard just go to bed why don't you why don't you bathe or something you're just you're just you're just losing it richard i'm i'll be right there john you know like like they're, they're, you know, he's got he used to do those gut-wrenching bits that were so vulnerable in a way that no comic had ever done carlin was great but carlin didn't have that quality that richard had to bring out the humanity in so many characters and i was always i was always like i would i watched prior like a little kid you know like probably you know people watch your know, kobe bryant or something young people want to watch basketball love basketball you know and i'm watching richard going how does he do that how does he do the dog story that's an applause break it's not even that funny right like like but it's so much better than it's better than funny you know so i watched I, him I, doing mudbone and kept rewinding the tape Rewinding yeah. the VHS like 30 times because yeah. I couldn't figure out how he constructed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 so, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. I I would listen to the crap game routine on on uh, on on I can't, I, the second album I think it is, and I would just listen to that over and over again because he's doing six different people, and they're all completely different, right? Like like he's doing the voices and he does a tableau and it's like radio. But he's like Phil Hendry or something. He's doing all these different voices of people interacting, and he's got the white cop, you know, going now. Gosh darn it, guys, we really need to. Have you seen Jesse? We really need to see. Nah, man, I ain't seen nobody. I ain't seen Jesse. If you see him, tell that motherfucker he owe me twenty dollars, right? Get ten, cause he'll. I ain't seen no. Have you seen Jesse? Nah, I ain't seen nobody since nineteen forty-two, right? <laughs> and and that shit. I listened to that the other day, and I was laughing harder. Then I laughed in a long time at anything. That, that craps routine and, and Mudbone and all that stuff is just epic. He has an obscure album called Black Ben the Blacksmith. I don't oh, really? know. Yeah. And where he plays the character of Black Ben the Blacksmith. And it's almost oh. like a Fireside Theater type album. Wow. Which okay. I have not, it has not been re released and it really needs to be. Wow. Because okay. he could do more things than any other comic probably ever. Yeah, I mean, he was he was funny on multiple levels. I mean, writing, I, you know, I love Dave Chappelle, and he's Dave Chappelle's as close as you could get to, to Richard. But uh, I still like look at Richard like you know he was the goat. You know, he he was like, yeah. and there's guys like and there's guys like Bill Hicks who has jokes that no one remembers because they're not on the Tonight Show appearance and they're not on the Letterman appearances. Some of them aren't on CDs. Yeah, Bill Bill gets Bill used to get like said that he's oh he's the angry guy comic and he just he just screams and doesn't 
But if you listen to those meticulously worded, he's got some of the best one-liners and most insightful, simple jokes that anyone has ever written anywhere, right? Yeah. You know, so. And he wrote visually. He would paint pictures yeah. with his words, which is amazing. Yeah, he's got the best joke. He's got the best joke about male-female relationships ever written and the best joke about, about fathers and sons the best joke ever about fathers and sons. He would say, uh, I never got along with my dad. It's such a simple joke. I wish I'd written it. He goes, I never got along with my dad. Kids at school would say, my dad can beat up your dad. And I'd say, when, right? <laughs> like, like, you name a time, I'll have him there, right? <laughs> like, I said, that is the greatest joke about fathers and sons ever yeah. written anywhere. And it's so simple and short. I love it. And, and one of the beauties of Hicks, because I, I got to work with him a number of times while he was alive, the, the beauty of him was every set was a snowflake. You, I, you know, I sat down and, and we worked Charlie Goodnights in Raleigh, North Carolina, 10 shows, and it was 10 different shows. Right. You know, in the headline spot. And there were, there were nights where I swore he didn't repeat material. Yeah. You know, it, it's yeah. just amazing to watch artists that really have control of the craft. Yeah, and um, he, he's, somebody, he's somebody that obviously never got as big here as he did posthumously when he went to England, and they, he did, he's a god over there. And then when I went to England, I, I casually mentioned to a guy in a bar at, at one of the clubs, the comedy clubs, where we were doing comedy, I said, uh, I said yeah, I work with Hicks at, in uh, Westport, Connecticut one time. And I said that, and the guy goes, oh my fucking god. You work with Bill Hicks. Everybody get over here. Get over here. This guy, you fucking work with Bill Hicks. Oh, my God. What was he like? And they all gathered around me. They all gathered around me like I was, like, telling, like, a ghost story, you know, like little kids. They were all like, oh, my God, what was he like? Where, where'd you work with him? What was that? What was, it, was he nearly like that? Was he angry? Was he a nice guy? Was he like this? And they asked me all these questions. Like, it was, like, fascinating because he's a god over there. He's a god in Australia, Jim Jeffries, all those guys. Yeah. You know, that's Jim Jeffries is Hicks. He's just, you know what I mean? Like, he's, he's doing Hicks, but he's great. He's great. I'm just saying. He's, he's you know, Hicks he 2.0, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and you've been really generous in giving us this hour. You've also been doing comedy for a long time, and we've, we've all got the ability to look back at when we started what do you wish you knew back then about comedy that you know now? Um, you know what's funny about that? That's, a, that's another one of those great questions. I, I, uh, I guess, I, guess I, I, I wish I was able to appreciate uh, that time instead of being so driven. But you can't, you can never tell someone that because no. it's, like, it's, like, it's like Jim Carrey saying, you know, I want everyone to become rich and famous so they realize that, you know, that's not going to make them happy. But you don't, you can't, you can't know that until you're rich and famous. Yeah. You know, it's like the paradox of the human condition, as I wrote in that letter, is that you don't realize certain things until you get punched in the face with them. And so I can say all I want. I wish I had known. But if you had sit me, sat me down, if older me had sat down and had a talk with younger me, younger me would have gone, ah, you know, I'll get to that. Don't worry about it. Don't give me any advice, okay? That's your story. Don't listen to me right now, all right? I just, for me, um, uh, it's just one of those things that you, you gradually learn to let go of the attachment to the outcome so you can really enjoy the process 
uh, uh, of, of which is where I'm at kind of now. Now I'm not afraid. Back then I was terrified. Like comedians were terrified people, you know, like <laughs> we yeah. hide it well. And I love these guys like, you know, I don't know if Rich Voss is like that, but like I see guys like Rich Voss who get on stage and just basically look like they're no different off stage than on stage and have absolutely no sense of like fear about anything. Like I'm, I'm always like amazed by that. Like I'm always, cause back then, back then I was just terror like oh my god oh my god gotta kill gotta kill gotta kill gotta kill gotta kill i'll never work again if i don't kill every show and that's my biggest thing that i wish i had known even though you know or been even if i had known it there was no way i could have convinced myself of it i would go i'd do affirmations where i'd say you don't have to kill you don't have to kill you don't have to kill you don't yes you do and then that show would start and it would be i gotta kill i gotta kill i gotta kill you know and and i love watching guys that go on stage and don't and don't and just are like the most casual people, you know, that I see like on stage, like Chappelle is like that, you know, it, there's absolutely, it doesn't seem to have any kind of fear of anything. Right. And I'm, I'm at a place now where I'm way more relaxed and I can have fun instead of being so tormentedly driven to, to kill every show, you know, <laughs> that, it, it, I was not willing to let myself really bomb and and that's my biggest thing that you have to let yourself go up and really be willing to eat it and i thought that i i was i was really i would go no i can't i can't do i can't let myself i'd be doing new material and i'd pivot right to the a material if something was going uh down you know not all the time and i but but usually i'd close with something really strong and i wish i was able to just go up and eat it like i watch some guys do i i, I love those guys that can get up and just don't care about bombing, man. Just have yeah. fun. Yeah, and you know, I wish I could say I was one of those guys, but <laughs> yeah. I'm not. Me and you both, buddy. Yeah, I'm yeah. worried about it. So, uh, post-pandemic, you looking forward to getting back on stage? Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know what the time frame is going to be. 2022. I don't know what, but uh, when it does open up, when the floodgates open up, I, I, I you know, it's like one of those things where. Didn't Jonathan Solomon? Jonathan Solomon's another guy. Remember yeah. Jonathan? Yeah. Jonathan had great jokes, and he had a joke that was so funny and so um, insightful. He said, uh, "He said, what? You know, I love that question that people always ask. What? What would you do if you had a year to live? Well, I do everything that I never that I never had a chance to do. I do that. Luckily, I don't have a year to live, so I don't have to do anything I want to do." <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly the human condition without that limited parameter placed on you. You don't like, you don't seize that. So hopefully when the, when the handcuffs come off and the pandemic breaks and, uh, and we can go back to the stage, I'll be able to bring the same level of like love and enthusiasm to it now with a, with fresh eyes and a renewed uh, kind of passion for the art form. Not that I didn't know. I always had a passion for the art form. It's just, I, I really do sense that um, coming back to it, this has been a time of reflection, introspection for a lot of people, and me included in that. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to, and I miss the miss the crowds. You know, I miss the people. I miss I miss the comic comic compadres and and fellow yeah. warriors on the on the front lines. You know, like you and everybody else in the business that we that we you know see all the time that know what this is like and love the art form the way we do. Yeah. Well, I hope that when it uh, comes back, I'm bringing you up on stage somewhere because oh, right. that means we're both working yeah all right, all right yeah. Brian. thank you so much for spending this hour 
And uh, hopefully if people actually listen to this damn podcast, we'll have you back again and talk about more stuff. You got it. Find me on Beastman McFadden on Twitter and Instagram or something, I guess. I don't know. I'm bad at that shit. What's your website? What's your website so people can find you? Uh, BrianScottMcFadden.com. There you go. And if you need help spelling it, just look underneath Brian's picture because it'll be right there. Talk to you soon, Brian. Got it, brother. Bye-bye. So my entire life has been spent in the back of comedy clubs talking to other performers and what unites us all is our love for comedy and nobody has more love for the art form of stand-up comedy than Brian. So much so that it, it permeates even the material he chooses to write. And when you find a performer who genuinely loves what he's doing on stage, genuinely loves the art form, which find is that it'll always be timeless. And that's what Brian is. This has been a really fun episode for me of the Comedy Legacy show. And, uh, We hope to see you guys next week with another great event. And until then, just keep listening and download us and review us wherever your podcasts are. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye. Worldwide Production.